Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, I'm Rob Schneider. And I'm Kevin David Thomas. And this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Broadway Curtain Podcast. Plus, you can always listen to all of our episodes, old and new, on the Broadway Podcast Network, iTunes, and Spotify. It's hard to think of the greatest music directors working on Broadway without thinking of today's guest. You have heard his incredible work for over 30 years, and you might have even seen him on stage in the original Merrily We Roll Along, Masterclass, and Curtains. And you heard his work in such musicals as The Visit, The Scottsboro Boys, one of my favorites, Sondheim on Sondheim, Curtains, The Look of Love, Ragtime, A Class Act, Steel Pier, and The World Goes Round, to name just a few. Just a few, folks, to tell us what it was like to work with such legends as John Kander, Fred Epps, Stephen Sondheim, Hal Prince, John Doyle, Susan Stroman, and so many others. Here is the maestro himself and a fantastic author in his own right, the wonderful David Loud. David, thanks so much for talking with us. And let's just jump right in. As someone who's been such an influential music director and musician, I'd love to know what sort of records were you listening to when you were growing up? Well, like every uh, middle-class American family, uh, we had My Fair Lady, we had Guys and Dolls, we had South Pacific, we had um, Brigadoon, we had Oklahoma, we had Carousel. We even had The Most Happy Fellow, which came on a three-disc set. Good choice, good choice. Uh, right, yeah. Not, not the normal single disc. We had some slightly more obscure musicals like Plain and Fancy. That, that oh, was yes. an odd one that we had, the Amish mm-hmm. musical. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and I remember a recording of Goldilocks. Why we had that, I do not know. But Uh-oh. One of my favorite scores, David. Honestly, it's one of my all-time favorite scores. <laughs> it's so funny. But I, you know, we had Barbara Birdie, West Side Story as well, and The Music Man. Were you listening to any sort of popular music at the same time as well, or were you just immersed into this theatrical world? I was not aware of pop music. Oh, good. You're in the right place. My family didn't really enjoy it. I liked The Carpenters. That was about (laughs) the only only pop album I had. And I remember when the the cast album of Jesus Christ Superstar came out, that was shocking and transgressive and exciting mm. to see you know something like a, a musical a musical theater story right. being told with this kind of music that was that was amazing to me yeah. and what did your folks do for a living they're both teachers did you think that might be the world you would go into first or never. did you no, never no i wanted to do wanted to do musical theater not not as a teacher i've ended up as a, as a teacher and i i have to say i love it Right. And it sort of rescued me. When did you first start playing the piano? Did you have formal lessons or did you just sit down and want to play by ear? I had formal lessons starting when I was six mm-hmm. um, from a wonderful teacher, Miss Korn in uh, Cincinnati, who talked way above my head right. and gave me 
lessons that I didn't realize the worth of for years and years and years. But, you know, great teachers can do that. They can plant something yes. in your head that long after the fact will suddenly fall into place and make sense. Right. Yeah. Uh, she, she did that for me. Were you able to play by ear? Or do you need that music right in front of you? No, I'm not one of those sit down at the piano and play the song you just heard once perfectly on the piano. I can work anything out. Mm-hmm. But I'm a great sight reader. I, you know, I, I process music more classically than by ear. Mm-hmm. That's a whole fascinating thing that I would love to explore at some point. Oh, yeah. That, that range of ways that people process music. Right. So right. interesting and different. Now, where did you go to college? I went to Yale undergraduate for music. And why Yale, besides it being probably the best school in the United States? But. Well, it's one of the best schools in the United States. That was one of the reasons, but also because it was close to New York. Ah, perfect. And I wanted to have the access to theater. Do you remember the first Broadway show you saw? Oh, my God, of course. Ah. It was the magic show. Oh, wow. What? And I think it is possibly still the greatest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> yes, yes. I remember every second of it. It had an amazing score. It had an amazing cast. Mm. And the what I loved about it was that the was when the music and the magic and the story all coalesced into one yeah. one thing. And I mean the song from the the sexy woman who's always conjured up by mu- by magicians. And she's in the middle of a shower. She's talking oh, yeah. to her friends. And boom, there she is in some lech- lechy musician's ma- magic act. That, that was so <laughs> funny to me. <laughs> that, that, that a woman would, just because she was so pretty, would end up you know, on right. stage somewhere, that having been conjured up. I love that <laughs> score. Okay, so you saw the magic show. Do you remember any other musicals you saw during this time that were also pretty impactful for you? There was a review called Rogers and Hart that I saw. Oh, which that 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 was new for me. I hadn't experienced something like that before with no plot, yeah. sort of sexy people coming on stage and standing and singing songs. Yeah. I remember David Carroll was part of that. Oh, life. gosh. I, he's one of my – we love talking he about was, him because he's one of my favorite voices. I mean, just truly sensational. Yeah, that was, that was, a, that was such a loss. Yeah. Shenandoah. Oh, oh yes. I loved it. It was like, sort of like an Airsats Rodgers and Hammerstein. <laughs> <laughs> Now, were you performing at Yale? I was thinking of being an actor, but not incredibly seriously. I, I wasn't majoring in theater. I was rag- majoring in music. But I had worked as a messenger at Variety. Oh. Um, for two summers. And all the casting notices used to be in Variety. Yeah. And Variety, because I had worked there, uh, I had a free subscription to it. And it would come to my Yale post office box every week, rolled up in the box. And I would look at it and sort of wonder about professional theater. And then there was oh. a casting notice for looking for 14 to 20 year olds to be in Merrily We Roll Along, new musical to be directed by Harold Prince, written by Stephen Sondheim and George Firth. And I thought, well, that's why I went to Yale so that I could <laughs> be close to New York and take the train in and go to a, you know, a, there it is. an open call, which has of course, absolutely no likelihood of resulting in me being in a Broadway show, but how could I not try? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I had read Moss Hart's um, Act One, and it had sort of clarified for me what I needed to do, which was to go to New York, to be in the theater, to apprentice myself. Or yes, yes. Yeah, totally. I could do. And this play, Merrily We Roll Along, was, writ- was based on a play by Moss Hart right. and George Kaufman. I was 18. Oh, my God. I auditioned. Okay, so you took During the train. sophomore year. You took the train into New York. Train into New York. In Grand Central Station, I found a photo booth and snapped a four-inch by four-inch photo of myself, which I paper-clipped to the back of the resume I had typed up the night before. I had been in The Crucible playing Giles Corey, who is uh, like an 80-year-old man. <laughs> and I had been in You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, playing Linus. So, of course, I was going to be cast in a Broadway show. Yes, yes, naturally. And, uh, well, that day I spent online with hundreds of other people. Since all of equity turned out 
trying to look between 14 and, and 20. <laughs> was it at a Broadway theater? Were you out, outside? It was actually at the Minskoff Rehearsal Studios. Ah, ah. yep. And the line went out the door and through Schubert Alley. Mm -hmm. What did you sing? I didn't actually sing that day. I was so far back in the line that I, I wasn't seen. But this kindly casting assistant came out and collected resumes from those of us who had waited all day. And two weeks later, I got a call in my dorm room from Joanna Merlin, <laughs> Hal Prince's casting woman, saying, would you like to audition for uh, Merrily We Roll Along? And I said, yes, I would very much. And then I had about three months of auditions where I would, every two weeks or so, I would go into New York and sing for Hal and Paul Gimignani and Joanna Merlin and Sondheim. And I would sing Tonight at Eight. And then I would go to the piano and sing another song, Opus One. Yeah. And they would smile and ask me a question and I would go back to Yale and, and two weeks later I'd do it again. And it went on for weeks and weeks and weeks. Sometimes we would audition on the set of Evita. Oh. oh. Hal's show, which was running at the time, which is nightmarish because there were light boxes set in the floor and the stage was raked and I thought it was going to fall into the pit. It was oh. a heady time for you. You're in college and you're, you're commuting for these callbacks. For like it was amazing. I felt yeah. so special. Yeah. I didn't tell anybody about it either. I, I just, it was just like my private little secret. And because I, I, I knew that the ending was going, to be, was going to be that I wouldn't get it. But I kept getting a little further and a little further. And the fact that I played the piano was very helpful. Right. Because they needed, um, at least two of the actors had to play the piano. Finally, it came down to a day when there were 90 of us at the beginning of the day. And at the end of the day, there were 23 of us left. And we were in a room with Hal Prince, and he said, the show has been cast, and you were it. Oh and I was a big Sondheim fan already. I had f discovered his musicals through albums. I had seen Sweeney Todd, you know, the most mm -hmm. amazing thing I'd ever seen. Mm -hmm. I actually saw Sweeney Todd sitting next to Michael Cerveris, because we were oh. both at the same high school. What was it like meeting Mr. Sondheim for the first time? Well, you know, it's pretty much like meeting God. Yeah. Great. <laughs> So, you know, you, you really aren't yourself in that situation. It took me so many years till I, I relaxed. You know, I, I was so lucky over the, over the years to work with him repeatedly. We, we did a revival of Company together. We did a revival of Pacific Overtures I worked on with him. I did uh, Sondheim on Sondheim. Well, then, Sondheim. And he had, had always loomed so large in my, my, my list of mentors and heroes and it took me. It just took me too long to settle down and realize that he was just a person um, and a very kind and thoughtful person. I mean, he was so nice to me always. And at that moment where I was first proposed to him as a music director, and he only knew me as like being one of the Merrily kids, right. I thought, well, he's never going to go for this. He was thrilled that I was music directing a revival of Company, and every single. Um, time I came back to work with him, he was always just so welcoming, and I, I was just so honored to be his comrade. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, working on shows. What lesson do you think he's taught you that you still take with you to this day? The more specific your work is, the more universal it can be. Mm -hmm. I think that is one of the great things about his art. It is so specific. He. He worked so hard to get the right detail, the right turn of phrase that reveals everything about a character. The way his lyrics sit on the music is so crafted, yet so easy. He says God is in the details, and I, I think that's a, great, that's a great lesson for artists. Yeah. Now, what was it like getting to work hand-in-hand -hand with him on Merrily We Roll Along, seeing him day in and day out. What was that experience like? I was in a state of terror for most of it. <laughs> you know, I, I felt much less talented than most of the other actors. They were better singers, they were better dancers. You know, I could play the piano, that was my one, that was the one thing I had up my sleeve and that proved to be very useful. Um, and Steve was always very complimentary of my piano playing, and it was a thrill, especially because the show was so flawed and so uh, sort of troubled in previews. We, we did five weeks of previews where they changed the show every single performance we did. Mm. They came in with new lyrics, new staging, new scenes, new thoughts, you know, cuts, changes. And 
we never said, no, we can't do that, Mr. Prince. We always said, of course we can do that. And yes, we will work on our day off. And yes, we'll learn this new routine. And we, we were doing the kind of work, I mean, it should be illegal. It was like a sweatshop. Yeah. We were working so hard because the, the giants of the industry were, were grappling with this complicated, messy musical that um, audiences were hating when we started previews. And it really did get better and better and better and better and better. And the, the honor of watching those great people grapple with the material every day was, I mean, the most valuable class I've ever had in right. you know, how to fix a troubled musical. What are some of the lessons that you learned from that process you still take with you today? What they had to do was clarify what the show was about. Mm. And a lot of that meant cutting down the smaller parts and focusing on the leads. When Marilyn was originally written, the smaller parts all had little verses and songs and there's all sorts of little small characters that really had a life in the way that the original play also has many more characters than, than just the leads. You're constantly meeting interesting people as you go back in time in, in the original play. And in the musical, they'd sort of done that, but it got confusing. Like, who, who is this really about? Mm. So the smaller parts were cut away and it was focused much more clearly on Frank, Mary, and Charlie. When you were in the rehearsal process, did you think it was going to be a hit or did you go, something doesn't seem right here? I was so naive and so thrilled to be there. I thought it was fantastic. Yeah. I didn't know when people were leaving during the first act that we weren't connecting with the audience. Mm. But I still thought the show was fantastic. I still thought the music was fantastic. I, and it got so much better that I thought it got great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. By the time we, we opened. And it's very artificial, the audience response around opening night. And, you know, they were standing and cheering and the show was playing like it was a masterpiece. Yeah. On opening night. And then we read those reviews and it was like, oh, my God, we were the scum of the earth. Right. Mm. But the day after we closed, we recorded the cast album. Right. And the show has never died since then. You know, the album really was able to prove to the to the world that it's a great score. Yeah. I don't think they've ever gotten it quite right. And everybody thinks they know how to fix it. Totally. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> And I always say, I'm sure that this production will be the one that fixes it. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, so you just went right back to school. Did you think for a minute you might stay in New York because you had this your Broadway debut? And- oh, I was so sad. Yeah. But I, I, I did want to, I was so sad when it closed. And, you know, I had thought I'd be out of college for two years doing the yeah, follow-up course. And I called Yale and said, can I come home? And I was back in January. Mm. Having missed one s- semester. That was all right, too. I mean, Yale was fantastic. And I yeah. I realized at the end of Merrily that I wasn't an actor and that the person who I really wanted to be was Paul Gimignani down in the pit. Mm. Yes. He was the music director and he was this powerful force that just took our attention and made us sing as one and made us focus. And we were kind of terrified of him, too. But I could tell that underneath all that gruff exterior, there was a warm artistic heart that yeah that was a wonderful musician and i watched him conduct merrily and i thought that really is where i belong that's what i need to be doing mm-hmm. and so i shifted my focus and i started applying to you know summer stock theaters to work as a, as a music director or assistant music director and to sort of Changed my changed my focus to that. And did you go to Summerstock? I mean, did you, what? What I did. I worked at the. I would love to hear some. Surflight was twelve shows in twelve weeks, no days off. That's all. (laughs) That's all, and I did it for two summers. So I learned twenty four scores, doing that, and that's twenty four scores from the inside out, like really learning how the vocal arrangements work, how the dance arrangements are constructed, how they move from dialogue to song to dance. And that was a great set of lessons as well. Um, so most of the shows were pretty awful at Surflight, but every now and then everything would come together. <laughs> yeah. And in that one week of rehearsals. In yes. that one week. And you know, if the director was was right and all of a sudden it was cast right. And and those for those shows, you could really feel the audience going, 
well, this might be good. Mm-hmm. And, and they'd get really quiet and you could feel them kind of willing the actors to, to be better. and Step it up. <laughs> step it up, yeah. Now, were you living in New York at this time? So were you commuting yeah. from New York to wherever the summer stock gig was? I left actually while I was finishing up at Yale. So oh, I, was, wow. I did that while I was at Yale. And then I moved, to, I moved back to New York in 1984. And was your family supportive of all of this? They didn't know what hit them, really. Uh, okay. My parents never stood in the way of what I was doing, and they always were sort of surprised but permissive with me, you know, focusing so heavily on music and theater. And when I called them to say, you know, I'm thinking of dropping out of Yale and joining the circus <laughs> um, with Merrily, they were like, okay, whatever you think. Yeah. And I dropped out of Yale and moved to New York without a contract also. Oh, oh wow. I mean, we didn't get our contracts till like right before it started. But how could I not have done that? No, of course. <laughs> Trust your gut. So <laughs> when you go back to New York, how do you start making a name for yourself within the New York theatrical right. community? Well, that's, that's a hard thing to do. And the way it happened for me is the way it usually happens, which is somebody you work with on some strange show somewhere bonds with you and suddenly they need a pianist or they need a music director or they need you and they ask for you and you sort of rise up with the people who you work in at places like Surflight mm-hmm. and you know the crappy little jobs that you think are dead end are not dead end because of the people who are doing them with you yeah right right, right. Um, and Scott Ellis and I were cast in a play called Billy Bishop Goes to War that we did up at the Portland Stage Company in Portland, Maine. It's a two-character play for an actor who plays 18 parts, no costume changes, and a pianist who's on stage with him the whole time, accompanying the scenes and singing the occasional duet. And Scott was brilliant in the Mm. part. It was the last thing he did as an actor. And we had so much fun together. We had a ball, sort of figuring out how how to make this weird play work with only one actor and you know through his body language through his voice and also through the underscoring we could tell the audience which character was speaking and which one was entering Mm. and the audience really believed that there were three or four people on stage having a scene together when it was clear that there was only one actor (laughs) and somebody playing the piano because because scott believed i mean scott just had that that childlike belief in what he was doing and if he said that the chair that he was sitting on was a World War I fighting plane, he believed it. So the audience believed it. Anyway, we were, we were very successful up in Portland. And then it was a time that regional theaters were completely broke. And they would cancel their production of As You Like It and book us in because we were only two people, yeah. a chair and a piano. Yeah. And we, we toured for like two years doing that play. Very successfully, uh, all around all around the country. And then Scott decided to be a director, and he needed a music director, and there was my career. He gave me five Broadway shows. What um, is it about your collaboration that works so well? We had that thing where I just knew what he wanted all the time. His taste was so clear to me. We, we had similar taste. We had similar um, ambitions for the kind of theater we liked. You know, the kind of theater that happens in the audience's imagination. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily you know, from big sets and big effects. But what an actor can do is what's really interesting to me. And, and, and Scott shared, shared that with me, I think. And just the fact that we'd been in every conceivable, you know, possible disaster over those two years together. <laughs> yeah, that really gives you <laughs> your true colors. When you're in that it bonds you to yeah. <laughs> with, a, with a show. Because there's always something... Horrible going wrong. Totally. What was the first show that you worked on together as director, music director? The revival of She Loves Me mm-hmm. at uh, the Roundabout, which is just a heavenly experience from, from day one. It was, it's one of my favorite shows ever. It's mm-hmm. beautifully written and so mature and touching and true. The score is just exquisite song after exquisite song. We had a great cast with Judy Kuhn. Mm-hmm. And Boyd Gaines, yep. Sally Mays, Howard McGillan, Lee Wilkoff, Brad Kane, the voice of Aladdin, played yeah. Arpad. Gorgeous set designed by 
Tony Walton, who just passed away. Yeah. It was the perfect show for Scott. It's not a, it's because it's real. It's reality. They're, they're real people selling, you know, perfume and soap and lotions. And he loves digging into the reality of a, of a shop and how it works and what the politics are and what the mm. mechanisms of its work are. It was a very happy run. How did it come to, to be? How did, how did you guys get picked for, for this, this piece? You know, I don't know what, what first attracted it to him, but he brought it to the roundabout as a proposing it. The, they do it at their off-Broadway space in Times Square. We did it at, it's called the Criterion Center mm-hmm. back then. And they just, they just said yes and supported us, and they were great. Did you work on And the World Goes Round before this with him? Yes, that was the first off-Broadway show we did together. Okay, and tell us a little bit about that experience, because that cast album is still one of my favorites. It's The arrangements are fabulous. Thank you. Scott had done The Rink uh, for Kander and Adam. He was in the cast of The Rink on Broadway, and he had bonded with them. And he he had this idea as sort of a calling card to, to try to get the industry to see him as a director rather than an actor. He wanted to do a review of Kander and Ebb's songs where each song would reflect in an interesting way off the song that preceded it and the song that followed it. And we wanted to do it without any dialogue, with just trusting the actors and the songs to, to make each song sort of be a one-act play yeah. that was satisfying beginning, middle, end. So we cast it with extraordinary singer actors and we started rehearsing and Kendra and Ebb wanted to know what was going on and they came into rehearsal and to our surprise like loved what, what, what was <laughs> happening and wanted to be a part of it and they wanted to be they wanted to kibitz and they wanted to to tell the actors little secrets about how they had written these songs and they were so generous that way and so open to so what we were doing with the piece, you know, there was none of that, like, well, it has to be this way because it's always been this way. Right. That they might have had as, as I ripped apart their numbers and redid the feels and, you know, changed little things about the musical qualities of, of the pieces. Mm-hmm. They, were, they were so open to that. And it just was a great experience for all of us. And, and one of many collaborations eventually for you and them. Yes, uh, it was during that rehearsal period that John turned to me and said, I'd love you to music direct our next Broadway show. Oh, my God. And I was like, <laughs> okay, uh... I'm available. <laughs> <laughs> and I did uh, Steel Pier for them. I did yep. the Scottsboro Boys. I did Curtains and did The Visit. Yeah. All yeah. on Broadway for Kendra and Ebb. And what an honor. I mean. To work with them. John Kander is the nicest, most sensible, most caring person in the world. What's it like to collaborate with him as a musician as well? I mean, what's his musicianship like and how do you, how well, do you he's collaborate? The, he's the best piano player you ever heard. Yeah. And he can just sit down at the piano and put his hands on the keys and out comes music. He says that his brain is a river of music that never stops. Wow. And it just comes out his fingers. He doesn't think about it. He doesn't edit it, it just comes. And it's always been that way for him. Right. He described writing with Fred, said in the same way that he can improvise freely at the keyboard, said Fred could do that with language. Mm. And they would just get in the room together and riff, find the kernel and then build the song together, just sort of improvising together. They, They only wrote in the same room and they never changed their their technique. Right. And their songs are so cleverly crafted. Yeah. And so seemingly simple while being just yeah. perfect. I'm curious, you did She Loves Me and it was a it was a success, huge success. Uh, you know, they did a recording of it. Now, did this open the door at Roundabout to do more productions? Is that how company came about eventually, or were they connected at all? Yes, they were absolutely connected because Scott was uh, the director of both of those. Scott Ellis was, and he he got more and more involved with the with the roundabout as the years went on. 
Yeah, she loves me. It was a great experience, and it, it did lead to com- doing company there. What was your relationship like with Bach and Harnick? Well, they, they were delightful. They came to every rehearsal, practically. Of oh, wow. wow. Was that, <laughs> that nerve-wracking? I know. No, not at all. Not at all. The two of them are just delightful. Bach and Harnick wrote Fiorello. They wrote Fiddler on the Roof. They wrote She Loves Me. They wrote Apple Tree. Um, The Apple Tree. And then on a show called The Rothschilds, they argued bitterly and split and never wrote again. So they were divorced. They were clearly divorced when we were working on She Loves Me. And I was always very aware that they were so hyper aware of each other and never sitting together, but always being very respectful for each other, to each other, very polite. Uh-huh. And watching poor Joe Masteroff, the librettist, sort of do the little dance between them uh, reminded me so much of my childhood with my parents. Uh, it was sad to see. But they would give the tiniest little notes. You know, um, perhaps there could be a, a smaller retard here that, so we don't lose the energy there, David. Yeah. Little things like that. Pronunciation, phrasing for the chorus, and every note they gave made it sparkle more brightly and move more smoothly. The show is so intricately constructed. It's, I think it's an almost perfect musical. Mm-hmm. Yes. So let's talk a little bit then about working with people like Susan Stroman on Steel Pier, which is one of my favorite, favorite shows of all time. Yep. Steel Pier, the album is so flavorful. Yes. It is. Orchestrations are just sublime. Tell us what it was like working on crafting the show, specifically conjuring up the era like you just said. You know, Steel Pier is set in in the Depression in the late 20s, early 30s, and... That era of music is so juicy. When you think of the sort of the explosion of jazz and ragtime yes. and you know, sort of operetta coming into musical theater and that sense of high melody that you get from from shows of that period. Syncopation. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and the the dancing was very period researched and of the time. Uh, and strong, it's like a it's like a masterclass on dance styles of the late 20s and early 30s, the, yeah. the choreography for that show. We had the world's best dancers, and they worked so hard. I mean, the show is about a dance marathon. The, basically, the whole cast is on stage the whole time dancing, and viruses would go through that company like plague. I mean, they were, they were just constantly sweating on each other and getting sick and coughing on each other, and, but none of them would ever dream of missing a performance. You know, they would just infect everybody all again. <laughs> <laughs> the images that, are, that spring into my head from that show are so beautiful. There's this gorgeous opening where this, the line of dancers came down from the very back of the stage, like through the mist. And they walked down to the front, looking out at the audience, and they reached into their pockets. They brought out sand, and they let the sand go onto the stage. And it was, then it was a beach, and it was maybe the ashes of the, the fallen pilot that uh, Rita meets at the beginning of the, of the show. And then they, they would disappear back up into the mist. It was so beautiful. At the end of the show, they, they did these spot turns in a circle, almost in the dark. It was like this whirlwind of dancers revolving in, in like a cyclone in the dark that created this passionate sort of wind, and then they would all split to the sides. I've never seen stuff like that before. Yeah. And as the conductor, you're right in the middle of it. You're on the podium. It's happening five feet away from you. And all the little subplots in Steel Pier, the the rivalries between the dancers, between the dance teams, the frustrations, the hopes, the, the sabotage that they would do to each other, it was all being played out by the dancers in a way that was so much more interesting than what the show was actually doing mm-hmm. down closer to the, you know, projecting out to the audience. But from where I was, I, I felt like I was inside this other drama, which was all the subtext yeah. that the dancers were creating each night. It was extraordinary. And why do you think that show was not as successful per se as, as I think maybe we all would like to, to have been? Yeah. Well, the score was great. The design was great. The cast was great. The music was great. But the story was not satisfying. The guy was dead. And when you found that out, 
never seemed to work. Mm. It was originally designed that you would go through the whole story and then at the end you'd realize he was dead. Mm. Then in your mind you'd look back and go, oh, well, now that makes sense and that makes sense and that makes sense and that makes sense. But that didn't seem to work for some reason. And the producers kept saying, you know, we got to find out earlier. We have to know earlier. Finally, the, the show started with an airplane crash and poor Danny McDonald, like, coming on stage with smoke coming off his costume and he's trying to be a ghost or something. I don't know what it was. <laughs> you know, how do you, how do you act invisible? How do you act transparent? <laughs> right. So I think when we opened, the audience was supposed to know from the beginning that he was dead, which is just, I guess, a different way to tell the story. Nothing about it worked. Nothing about that. That plot worked, really. But you think it would have been more impactful had at the end of the show, the audience found out he had been deceased. I think that might have made it better. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I know I've seen movies like that where you, at the, at the end of The Sixth Sense, you know, when you find out what's oh, yeah. really happening, then you can go back in your mind. I think the movie even does that. It, it shows you all the little things that you didn't understand as they were happening and... Right. I don't know. It, but uh, the audiences did not connect with it, unfortunately. Well, yeah. folks, if you've never listened to it, please take a listen to it because it's it's a beautiful score. And your work on it, David, is just so fantastic. Mm-hmm. Now, when you begin a show like that where it's so steeped in a period, do you go and research recordings of that time and then share that with the cast? How does that world work for you? You know, it's interesting. I asked Kander when he was writing Cabaret, if he did a lot of research about Weimar music and what the German music was was like at that time. And he's, he said no, he did not. He had an idea that, of what he felt about that music. And he certainly knew a lot about Kurt Weill and maybe other contemporary composers at that time. But he, he said, I don't want to be doing a dissertation. I want to make a score. And so he wrote his take on that time without pedantically imitating styles of the time. Right. And of course, what, what you get is the flavor of the time with the craft of, a, of, a, of what is still a true John Kander song. Exactly. And I feel the same way. I, I mean, research is great, and I think we should explore and we should know everything about our source material and all that, but you don't want to get out of the theater and into the museum. <laughs> That's a great way of putting it. Yeah. Can you lead us through what a typical rehearsal day is like for you or how you begin the process of teaching music to uh, the actors? To me, that's the most important step in the entire process. How you teach the music is everything <clears throat> because it's going to affect the way the actor sings that music for the rest of the run. And I, I try to work as slowly as possible getting the music into the cast's brains in the way that I want from the, from the beginning so that we mm. always know we're going to breathe here. This consonant is important. This one is not important. Trying to just get all the information into them because as soon as they start dancing around, acting, saying their, <laughs> saying their lines and acting, all that's going to go out the window right. if you don't really know it. So I try to teach the scores as precisely as I can. And then I like to do a sing-through of the show before, before they're on their feet so that we just have this memory of what the score is trying to be. Because then it all falls apart. It all goes to shit. Nobody knows where the cutoffs are. Nobody is singing together because they're acting and dancing and that's the way it should be. But the rest of my rehearsal process is trying to get the score back to the way it was when we sang it around the piano before all the other people started fucking it up. It's so brilliant. And I know it's hard to worry about your cutoffs when, you know, you're pirouetting or sobbing or whatever it is you're doing is getting in the way. But we got to get it on four, so (laughs) fuck off. (laughs) Hello, this is Betty Davis. Not the young one. The old one. I've been on Matches.com looking for a gentleman who might like to date an actress who loves to smoke and who had a black and white career. And I thought, why am I wasting my money on this when I could merely donate it to those boys behind the curtain? Go to Patreon.com and give all you can. God knows they need it. 
and do it before you're 122 years old. That's Patreon. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Has there ever been a time where you had an idea of what you thought the song should be? And then a performer came into the room and rehearsed it with you. And you realized, oh, wow, it could be something totally different. Oh, interesting. Isn't that the most thrilling thing that ever happens? Yes. <laughs> oh, God, yes. Yes. When, when an actor comes in and shows you new possibilities in a song that is the best thing ever mm. i pray mm. for that you know i call it actor magic when you when you work on a song with somebody and they're doing it exactly the way you want them to do it they go away they work on it themselves they come back all of a sudden it's theirs mm. and they're, maybe they're not doing exactly what you said but they've figured out why it has to be this way right. and if the actor magic is strong you know it, it can reveal things in a score that you never thought were there. Can you think of a performer, and I know you've worked with lots of geniuses, that when they walk into a rehearsal room with you, you get excited. A smile goes on your face because you know it's going to be a fun collaboration. Certainly Karen's the Emba. Oh, the best. Mm -hmm. The best. Yeah. Karen can do anything and has never failed at anything she's attempted to do. She's just the best. And she knows in her bones what it should be. You don't have to tell her what it should be. She knows. She's just one of those instinctive people. Maren Maisie was like that. Oh. You never had to tell Maren what to do. She just knew. And it was never storm and drawing with her either. She just was always perfect. <laughs> she could be anything. She could be, you know, Hollywood glamour. She could be the girl next door. She could be Nordic ice princess. She could be wacky storyteller. When did you first meet her? Marin replaced Karen Mason in the off-Broadway run of And the World Goes Round. And, and Karen Mason was great, but Karen Mason has sort of a dark take on the world. And, <laughs> and Marin is sunshine and light. And it was so interesting to see those same songs change so much. Like Marin's um, Colored Lights was mm. this triumph at the end, whereas... Karen was raging against the world at the end of it. Marin's Ring Them Bells was the funniest thing you'd ever heard. And Karen's was just like the weirdest story you've ever, <laughs> you've ever encountered. That must be exciting to you, though, as a conductor. Absolutely. Yeah. Working with Brian Stokes Mitchell was like that in Ragtime. It was just thrilling to see what that man could do with his voice. And, of course, Audra, who I got the privilege of working with on three shows. Yes. Masterclass, Ragtime, and Porgy and Bass. Mm -hmm. She can do anything. Let's she can do anything vocally, anything acting wise. She's just astonishing. Yeah. As a music director, what note would you say you find yourself giving more than any other note? Triple your diction. Triple your diction. I love that. Yeah. The lyric is very important to you, isn't it? From the very first moment of the show. If you can't hear it, you can't get it. In auditions, you've been to, uh, in, you've sat through so many auditions. What do you, is that what you look for in an audition as well? What are you, what are you looking for? for, for well, yes, I do look for that. But really in an audition, what, what I look for is, can this person tell a story? That's what we're praying for behind the table, is a story mm -hmm. that exists in a song. And poor, poor actors are always so nervous in auditions that so often that element of, a, of the piece floats away from them. 
Mm-hmm. And they're just focused on recreating what they did the last time they sang it in their voice lesson. <laughs> or whatever. And really what you want is a story. And when it happens, the whole room lights up and everybody starts writing like the, the person's name. We must have this person in our show. It's great to see when an actor can actually do that in an audition. What is your relationship like with a sound designer once a show goes moves into the theater? Such a complicated question. <laughs> Give us a complicated answer. As a music director, I have to balance the show from the way I can hear it on the podium. I'm going to balance the orchestra in, in a way that supports the voices without overwhelming them. And in a way, all of my work is in the hands of the sound designer because it's the sound designer's job to translate what I hear on the podium to the entire theater, which is very difficult. The older Broadway theaters, of course, were designed not to need electronic amplification. Yep. And when I'm in one of those theaters, I try to do at least an afternoon or an hour or something where we test the acoustics of the space without any amplification and then build up from that to see what we need. Oh, interesting. But anyway, all of my work is in the sound designer's hands and that can be really frustrating if the sound designer isn't tasteful and instinctive and a storyteller as well. Got to be part of the team and telling the same story as the rest of us. What do you find to be the biggest gap between what you want and what a sound designer wants? If that makes sense. You know, where, where do you find yourself having the most conversation with the sound designer? Well, it's very tempting to just make things louder. Yeah. And make the voices louder. And then everybody's happy because if they can hear everything, that's not always the best goal in the world. I try to, I try to bring out lots of dynamics in a score when I'm working on it. I try to have the actors work softly with clarity and loudly with clarity so that we have all of that variety. If somebody's just loud all night through, through everything they're saying, it's not interesting. It can get very wary. You want colors. You want gradations. And the sound designer can erase that. Just you by know? putting everything at a loud yep. level. Yeah. Yep. Right. No color. That's very frustrating. And you want the orchestra to be present, but not overwhelming. And finding that exact balance is challenging also. And then this is because I, I don't have the knowledge of this. How do you check the balance when you're up at that podium? How do you mm. hear what's going on in the back of the house? Well, I try usually to have my assistant conduct a little bit and go out and hang with the sound designer and hear what they're hearing and give my response to it. Ultimately, I have to trust that they're going to be enough of an artist to fulfill my vision. Mm-hmm. I can't do it. I don't know about all the little levers and the chords and the... Sure. Right, right. <laughs> so it's a, it's a real act of trust. And yeah. what do you look for out of an assistant? <laughs> Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Everything in the world. <laughs> Great. Great. Must play piano like like nobody else in the world. Must transpose. <laughs> must always be smiling. <laughs> must be happy to work, you know, in the sweat mines. Yes. <laughs> it's funny because it's true. <laughs> I had such great assistants, you know, who have gone on to be wonderful music directors themselves. People like Sam Davis. Um, oh, yeah. And um, Andy Einhorn. Uh, Andy. And um, they're all so talented. Got a good, good group of protégés there. Yes, yes. Let's talk a little bit more in depth, if we can, about your relationship with Stephen Sondheim and uh, bringing his work to life. Uh, was Company the first one together? Besides Merrily, where we know you were an actor. We had done Merrily, and then when I first moved to New York, I got a job in the pit of a revival of Pacific Overtures that Franz Coder had directed at the York Theatre Company. Yes. And it was a wonderful revival. Very small, where the original had been, you know, huge. This was a much more intimate look at the story, and it worked perfectly well. Mm. Mm. And Pacific Overtures was 
just so exotic and strange and funny and profound. The lyrics are so simple in places and so fiendishly clever in others. There's a haiku-like simplicity, although he was never really writing haikus. But he also finds you know, extraordinary humor and there's wonderful pastiche in the score. You know, he's imitating other styles, right. like the five generals coming, all demanding ports and the... You know, the, the British general is uh, Gilbert Sullivan. Gilbert Sullivan, Kong. yes. The American general is this, you know, Sousa. Mm-hmm. The French is this Offenbach can-can. The guy from Russia is doing this chardash. You know, <laughs> um, and the Dutch guy is doing this ridiculous waltz clog. Yes. It's so funny. I it love is. that number. So, so I worked on that. I was the assistant, and I played in the orchestra. And uh, Eric Stern, who was the music director, mm. went away and did something else at the end, and I, I conducted. And Steve saw me conduct, and I was very nervous, and he thought it was great. It was all, that was all very positive. And then, yeah, we did company together. And on company, we had this day where the cast knew the score, and Steve came in, and we sang through the score, and he coached every single number. Oh. And it was fantastic. He's such a good coach of his own material, and he... He just dives in and does the work, and mm-hmm. everybody's shitting themselves, of course, because it's not <laughs> But they were adults, and they bucked up and took the notes and asked the questions, and it was a great day. I felt like he really just unlocked so many questions that the cast had mm. stored up, and mm-hmm. I try to pass on, whenever I work on the, the material from the company, I try to pass on those things that he told us that day. Mm-hmm. Do you remember some of them? A lot of it was finding where the songs climax. Mm. Oh. Where is the climax of the song here? Why are you building so so much when you still have so far to go? Mm. Was a lot of the work that day, I remember. Making sure that Joanne doesn't have to scream until she gets to the big scream in mm. the lunch. Finding a way to make the build in the opening number exciting. So it wasn't just... Bobby, Bobby, at the same volume for the entire, yeah. the entire number. Mm-hmm. Finding ways to vary the intention so that the volume could be different right. as the song was going on. How much of it as a music director are you also helping with the acting? I mean, I know the answer to this, obviously, and I know what your answer, but I'm just would like, because some, there are some people that think, oh, I just do the notes on the page, that's it, and it's, it ends there. Can you talk a little bit about how the storytelling is very much a part of what you what you what your job is i take great liberties in that department i believe that my responsibility is not just the the singing of the song it's the acting of the song and it's the acting of the character in the song and i give more notes i think about diction and character and development than most music directors would dare and some directors don't like that and some some resist that, but not the good ones. <laughs> yeah. I try to be very collaborative. And if that means going over to Susan Stroman and saying, you know what, I think this might be better if, if musically we did this here, that's going to affect the dancing. That may not be exactly what she wants to hear, but she's enough of an artist to at least consider my request. Mm. And often, you know, say, of course, you're absolutely right. Let's do that. You know, I think it's very important that dancers, when they're singing have their heads facing the audience. <laughs> and yeah. some composers don't always supply that. I mean, some choreographers right. don't always supply that. Right. And that's a conversation that I am not afraid to have. It's hard enough to understand people's lyrics. If there's dancing and the heads are away from the audience, your chances of getting the lyrics are even smaller. Mm-hmm. And that's, a, you know, things like that I feel are well within the purview of the music director. What happens when a director says, David, shut up. Yeah, <laughs> shut up. You're crossing a line. Well, how, I would get how do you very still- upset. <laughs> okay, great. I would get very upset in that case and have to figure out what I want, would want to do about it. So what have you been in a situation like that before? Not really in a serious way. I mean, it's all about reading the room. Yes. There's certainly times when it would be the worst idea in the world for me to butt in with my opinions. Mm-hmm. But there's always a time that, you know, 
I can bring it up, hopefully. Who are some of the directors that you've really enjoyed working with? I mean, I know you've talked about Scott Ellis and I know you've talked about Stroh, but who else is in that list where you go, yes, I'll drop anything to go work with you? Frank Galati. Tell us more. Tell us more. Frank did Ragtime. Mm -hmm. And also uh, the first two incarnations of The Visit that I did. Uh, Frank did it at the Goodman and at the Signature in D.C. And working with Frank Galati is sort of like working with Santa Claus combined with the Pope. (laughs) He is the most brilliant storyteller and articulate inspirer of of people. Um, Note sessions with him are like a graduate school in comparative literature and theatrical tropes. (laughs) He's so smart. And he's so giving with his knowledge. You just feel like you feel cleaner and smarter after talking with him. He had a great visual sense, but on Ragtime, I think what, what made it work with that collaboration was that he had Graziella Danielle, who knows the mechanics of staging and can make anything happen on stage technically. Mm-hmm. So that Frank could just sort of step back and be the big picture guy. Mm-hmm. And he was the nice one. And he could be that way because Garth was the mean one. Oh. Garth was the one who could say, this song sucks and you got to write a better one for tomorrow. Which Frank would never say. But Garth could say that. Wow. And so they go away and they write a better song. And that's not always the case in the show. There isn't always somebody who can say that. And it's one of the things that made Rad Time so great. I think mm. that Garth didn't give a shit about your feelings. Right. He, he told the truth. And Frank could make you feel better. But Garth would say, you know, not in my theater. <laughs> <laughs> well, good cop, bad cop. Okay. Right, right, uh, right. David, this, we usually ask this as our last question. And so what do you know now that you wished you had known back in 1981 when you first were coming to the city and <sighs> starting your career? Be yourself is the is the lesson that I think we all learn in the business Mm. eventually. You can't be pretending to be somebody else. You have to do the work to figure out who you are, what what you want to say, and then how you're going to say it. You can't be anybody else. You can only be you. I think that's true of actors. I think that's true of musicians. I know it's true of directors. Anybody can smell when somebody is pretending or lying or in some way not being who they really truthfully are. And it's so much easier, ultimately, to present your true self in your, in your work. It's the hardest thing to, in the world to do. I think we all have things about ourselves that we are embarrassed about and don't like or are ashamed of or have been taught to be ashamed of. And sometimes those are the best things about you. Mm-hmm. The interesting things, the quirky things. I love that. What a great way to end. That is words to live by. David, it has been such a joy getting to talk to you today. And on behalf of ourselves and Kevin and all of our listeners, thank you for providing us with so many beautiful musical moments over the past 30 plus years. What a nice thing to say. Thank you. Truly, thank you. Seriously. Uh, Friends, please make sure to buy a copy of David's fantastic book, Facing the Music. If you click into our link in our show description today, it'll take you over to Amazon where you can go and purchase it. It's fantastic. David, I hope that we get to meet in person someday so we can shake your hand and say thank you for all the beauty you have given us. I would love that. You guys are so energetic. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Going here. All right, (laughs) friends. Until next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode. And a big thanks to the punchy players, Jeff Marquis, who is bringing back Lucy, Betty, Judy, and Morda shill for us. And a big thanks to our sound editor, Daniel Schwartzberg, and social media manager, Bethany Ann Selecki. And don't forget, we want more folks to hear these incredible stories, and that's where you come in. In order for people to find out about us, we need lots of ratings on iTunes. So head on over to iTunes, search for Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends, click on our logo, click on ratings and reviews, then write a review and leave us five stars and make us feel as special as Eliza Doolittle on Eliza Doolittle Day. Or you can leave us just one star and you can make us feel as baddie, baddie, bad as Annie did in that really weird production in Boston where Annie dreamt that she was being adopted, but then she ended up back where in the orphanage right back where she started yeah true story rob saw it 
Yes, and it was Batty. It was bizarre. I was there. I was. Oh, good. So head on over to iTunes and make us feel even more special than we already do. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.